Hello and welcome back. Another week has passed. Another Star Trek episode is out there in the universe. And we, as always, have tuned in here at Subspace Radio to discuss it, break it down, and see what other topics spring from this episode. Kevin, how are you? Hello. Just thought I would swing by to discuss this week's episode with you. We're here to discuss uh, the penultimate episode of Season 3 of Lower Decks, Episode 9. Mm-hmm. trusted sources this has been a packed season i was gonna say already at the end but for the first time it doesn't feel like already at the end i feel like we have been given well and truly a season's worth of stuff on lower decks Let- just by how packed these episodes are yeah for someone like my good self who has only watched the first two seasons in binge format for me to mm. watch season three in this week-to-week installment. It's been a good experience to go week-to-week, and it has been. It's been a very... Mm. I was a bit trepidatious at the start going, oh, it's quite, you know, episode of the week type of thing, but it's just slowly caught up on me, and uh, yeah. especially the last couple of episodes have been some big steps and big moments and some big developments for the characters, which is uh, great to see. That's what we're here for. We're here for the characters we love being challenged, put through the ringer and uh, see how they come out on the other side. And this week they were challenged by the presence of a reporter on the Cerritos. Yes, 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 yes. What did you think of Trusted Sources? I thought it was a good episode. It was a bit of a, it really got to me in the feels, Kevin. There was some some big moments that happened later on, which we'll get to, that really did uh, affect me, which were quite Mm. uncomfortable to see, and uh, I wasn't happy about it. But to see journalism played out within the Star Trek universe is something that we will explore a bit later on in this episode. But yeah, to have someone as this outside presence having a watchful eye and a judgmental eye over the processes of uh, how Starfleet works is quite intriguing because we've only ever really got Starfleet's views amongst themselves as a, or alien sources wanting to either join the Federation or stuff like that. But to have someone outside of all of that was fascinating to watch. How do you find it? I, uh, look, I could take or leave this one. There were definitely things that I loved in it, but overall it left me a little lukewarm this week. And Looking back on it, I think the main reason for that is, in my view, this was not an episode of Star Trek Lower Decks. This was an episode of Star Trek Cerritos. (laughs) Most of the screen time, most of the story this episode was not about our Lower Decks crew members and their perspective. It was about the bridge crew and about the Cerritos and the effect that the reporter would have on the ship. Watching it the second time, I was struck the... The entire teaser and most of the first scene is all Captain Freeman and Ransom and the Admiral and the mission that the ship is going to go on. And our Lower Decks crew members only just inch on screen with Mariner walking down the hallway covered in blueberry, which is, you know, it's a funny way to introduce her. But I felt like our Lower Deckers were the foil this episode, not the point of the episode. That's a very good point. Yeah, I hadn't looked at it that way, but it was very much flipped because there has been a lot of episodes this season, especially at the beginning, that were very much like we've said, this is clearly a Lower Decks episode that you wouldn't find anywhere else in Star Trek, whereas this one very much felt like 
what it is to be on the bridge crew where all the, the starring characters are mm-hmm. opening with the captain dealing with this issue and how they're going to put the, the ship into ship-shaped condition. Yeah, um, it's a risky thing you do when you structure an episode around ultimately a rather unsatisfying mission. Like the whole point is the reporter's there to see what we hope will be an awesome mission and it turns out to be a bit of a flop. But I think that bled too much into the episode, turning the, the episode at large into a bit of a flop for me. It very much showed that the Cerritos is sort of like the lower deck within the Federation. So it's sort of like the captain is there trying to build up the esteem of the California class and instigating this new process will have a newfound respect or recognition for the that class of of ship within the federation so there was that type of play there but it was very much the you know the a team as opposed to what we want to see as the people on the benches and like there was hardly any boinler rutherford and i'd barely saw Teddy at all. Teddy had one line about having learned to uh, unhinge her jaw for the pie-eating contest. Damn right. Funny line, but not much else going on there for our characters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Highlights the the return to Onara and Brekka. I did want to talk to you about that, as I am not up to date with my Well, I'm surprised you don't remember this, because this is from the last episode of TNG before Skin of Evil, in which Tasha Yar Ah, right. So I would expect this to be, like, (laughs) fresh in your memory as one of the last episodes of TNG that you ever watched. A a, a beautiful paradise before, (laughs) before the serpent took it all away. This is, like, known by fans as the last episode that Denise Crosby filmed as Yarp. Yes. So there's this scene at the end where Picard and Crusher are kind of walking out of the cargo bay, and the giant doors are closing behind them. And if you squint, you can see Tasha Yar standing in the deep background on the cargo bay. And just as the doors close, she waves enthusiastically because it's her farewell and it it's so it's so sweet i watched it again just to warm my heart today reminded of that but uh yeah the the episode symbiosis is about these two planets that as ransom explains this episode are in a symbiotic relationship where one provided the cure for a plague to the other but the cure was a addictive substance. Yes. And so even after the plague was cured, the planet continued to push this cure on the victims of that plague who were happy to pay for it because they were addicted to it by that point. But uh, the, the planet supplying it had no need for any other economy because they were creating this drug and getting all of their money from it. And so they didn't keep their ships maintained and the the whole system was about to break down in Soups the Enterprise D and goes, oh yeah, we can fix your ships for you, no problem, until they realize what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's an unhealthy symbiotic relationship. Now, the creators of the drug say, ah, 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 we know you, Federation. You have a prime directive. You're not allowed to interfere in the affairs of a civilization. So you can't tell them what we're doing to them. You can't tell them that they're addicted. You can't tell them that the plague is cured. And Picard goes, you're right. And we also can't fix your ships. (laughs) Goodbye. And that's the end of the episode. And, and just, just like, <laughs> and just leaves. And just like Ransom says uh, in this, like, <laughs> he left. Uh, that's it. <laughs> that's how it went down. Yeah, that's what I that's loved what I, that summary. <laughs> I want to talk to you about that. They're going, really? Did that, like, no, 
diplomacy, no Picard, <laughs> Shakespearean tone type of uh, delivery of a speech that would... There's a monologue in the turbo lift at the end because Dr. Crusher is, she does not like this idea to leave the Onarans to the ravages of withdrawal. Of she course. says, isn't that cruel? And Picard goes, hold the lift. I have a speech to make. <laughs> like, he does one of those, let's pause the turbo lift. Yeah, yeah. And he walks around and he goes, you know, the prime directive, it's not always easy, but it's the right thing to do. Uh, anyway... What is not captured in Ransom's unkind summary of Picard's solution here is that this is a clever workaround for the Prime Directive. He can't tell them that they're addicted. He can't explain to them that they will recover in time. He has to leave them thinking they are going to die of the plague. Yes. He has to leave them cold turkey because the Prime Directive won't let him tell them. Yes. Won't let him explain further. But yeah, they warp out of there and don't come back for sure. And okay, well then, how was it for you coming back and seeing this planet and seeing that the, they're all just you know, gym, gym nuts and going on fun runs? As soon as I realized what episode they were referring to, I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> and seeing the gym nuts and fun runs and the mural that has the dark place in the middle. <laughs> yes. That was hilarious. With the sharp teeth and the ripping of each other's heads off. Yeah. <laughs> Things got bad for a while. <laughs> that was the high point of the entire episode for yeah. me. But as soon as they realized, oh, we're not needed here. Let's go to Brecca instead. Uh, then it was a little downhill. We got sidetracked by the interview stuff and the Mariner stuff, and Mariner gets kicked off the ship. And then finally, they get to Brecca, and there's a Breen invasion for some reason. Mm. I mean, we could talk a bit about the Breen, but I feel like this is always the story with the Breen. When they need, when they need an invading force, but they don't want to get into the details. Just get the Breen. Just chuck the Breen Just get in. the Breen. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're wearing masks, so you can't tell what they're saying, they so are, don't worry about it. They're evil. They are literal, generic, you know, sci-fi villain. Yeah, they, they are the stormtroopers of Star Trek. Exactly, exactly. But yeah. their shots are a lot better. <laughs> what I do like about Star Trek Lower Decks is when they do do violence and stuff like that, they don't hold back, and they're a lot more uh, intense than a lot of the other, I mean, Deep Space Nine gets quite intense with the war stories. But to have that, you know, callous death of that of the uh, of the civilians and Ransom's reaction of horror—that was absolutely beautiful. Because he's yeah, yeah, he really amps up his dickish gym quality and and sleazy, uncomfortable quality in it. So to have him show that humanity of all that compassion and empathy about the the shock of that was really yeah. powerful, and just the speed and the the tension there was was really exciting. There were some exciting tense moments, seeing them like huddling behind the, the thing, getting shot at and all like getting beamed up at once. It like, it gave me some tingles yes. of a good action sequence for sure. But then it just didn't really go anywhere. They were rescued by the robot ship. That, yeah, that's something I did yeah. want to address of like what that means for like, cause what makes Star Trek, Star Trek is the humanity behind, you know, the ships. Yeah, it feels risky. It feels risky. Yeah. Uh, messing with the formula. Don't look too closely. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's the boldest. It's the boldest move they've done. Really, they've been playing in this safe world of, you know, oh, we can be a little bit rude. We can bleep out swear words. We can have a little bit of graphic violence for comedy, but we can then throw in a bit of actual tension and threat to 
boosted above just this sitcom-y yeah. thing. But then, no, this is a big, bold step in the continuity of Federation just yeah. being done in this, you know, silly, and I do it as well, the silly uh, animation show. This is big ramifications about the future of Star Trek and where this fits in within, you know, the Picard series world in the future. Um, all that type of stuff is very, yeah, that's some big, bold steps that they're taking in, in that little animation show. What did you think of all of the stuff with Mariner and the interviews and her crew members kind of it was, assuming she'd done the wrong thing? Um, yeah, I probably should have uh, telegraphed it earlier that, of course, you know, um, it's played up in a way and it's done in such a structure that, of course, she's the one who's speaking like, you know, so compassionately about the Cerritos and those people who the captain trusted uh, unbeknownst this, to themselves. This is maybe going to be a recurring theme, but I I was fooled. I fell for it hook, line, ah. and sinker. I was right with everyone else, assuming Mariner, maybe even meaning no wrong. I, I assumed she had opened her big mouth yeah. and, and told some stories out of school. Uh, but yes, in hindsight, it's obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially how positive she is in the whole start mm. of it. They go, this is all the great stuff. This is amazing. This is incredible. And those people who were being brought in were so smug about their own role within the ship. Of course, they're going to let slip all this stuff that yeah, that incriminates the the captain. And mm. um, yeah, there wasn't enough put on the captain's reaction that you just see the the captain like, you know, this is her daughter. And yeah. you know, saying, you know, you're 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 not even my daughter anymore, type of that's some intense stuff. There's gotta be some sort of yeah, emotional payoff to that because that's some that's some serious mending that has to be done if it can ever be healed. When she was thrown off the ship and she packed her bags and just kind of when she sadly left the the uh, lower decks quarters, like doing her Vulcan salute uh, as she walked out of the room, as she did, she did it sadly and said, "This always happens." Yeah, and and then and she runs into Jennifer in the hallway, who gives her her candle back and says, oh my- "I'm going to keep my opinions to myself." Oh. Um, just it was pretty brutal. Yeah, I mean, I was like, I just said I should have picked it, but I was mm. there going, "Yeah, wow, okay, you've really turned everything around." Um, yeah. But yeah, then um, they're going, of course, she's going to be the the staunchly supportive one because this, you know, she's just moved from ship to ship and home to home and never really invested. And I've watched it over three years, as we all have. I was really annoyed with her at the start, but then the true compassion she has for the for this ship and the crew and stuff has mm. uh, elevated her into this, you know, new area of, of endearment. Um, and to, yeah, it was heartbreaking to have her go back to her usual dismissive, emotionally distant, yep, yeah. just flip it, <laughs> flipping the live long and prosper <laughs> and getting on the ship of, of with <laughs> off to... Yeah, Starbase 80. We got the payoff of Starbase 80, um, the the place where they lose their sandwiches in their one size fits some <laughs> uniforms. And their elbow grease. That's not the <laughs> phrase that you... Just a random thing to mention, in, um, amongst all the interviews, there was an interview with the Dolphins, and it was subtitled, but in the version of the episode on Amazon Prime, the subtitles were missing. So I spent an inordinate amount of time 
gaining access to what it was those subtitles were supposed to be, <laughs> what I had missed that those dolphins were saying. And it was it was sadly disappointing in the end. The Cerritos is the first time I've had unlimited fish in my life, says one. The other says, when we're not stellar mapping, we're partying. <laughs> well, I can't, I can't believe I haven't brought this up. Or maybe I have. I've kind of lost mm. track of all the podcasts we're doing. That is one of the most uh, beautiful deep cut references to uh, um, Sequest DSV. <laughs> yes. Because uh, uh, that was famously a show I was really excited to watch because it had Roy Scheider and, uh, yeah, lest we forget, the wonderful Jonathan Brandis. Um, and I remember sitting down when I was a kid in high school watching uh, Sequest DSV, and I got my grandparents to sit down, my grandfather, who, you know, I liked the old Star Trek, but, you know, he was into his Hogan's Heroes and his MASH, and those were the type of shows he watched. Within five minutes of watching Sequest, and as soon as the dolphin Darwin started talking, my grandfather went, nope, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect uh, Sequest may have actually been inspired by uh, some off-screen lore about Star Trek The Next Generation. Some of the early blueprints of the Enterprise had labeled on it Cetacean Ops. Uh -huh. So there was kind of like this in the, you know, writer's guide sort of yeah. materials off screen, there was established this concept that cetacean ops was a thing. We never saw it on screen until Lower Decks, but uh, I guess whales were just big in the culture in the, the late 80s, early 90s. Look, you know what, if you've got to go back in time to get some humpbacks, of course you're going to be, <laughs> you know, George and Gracie have made a massive impact. The only other thing I kind of want to call out as a highlight is Dr. Miglimo's <laughs> Meemaw. And when the captain walks in and looks at the screen and just goes, Meemaw! <laughs> All hands to battle step! Meemaw! <laughs> I just love that the captain knows everything so much and yes. doesn't call it by, you know, Mrs. Bigley Bill. Okay, go, Meemaw! I, went, uh, I am with you now. I am on the Captain Freeman bandwagon. Yeah. As of this episode, I agree with you. She is the funniest character <laughs> in this series. Oh, I'm so glad you finally... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it's all stealth. It's, yeah. And she's not showy. She plays it completely straight. She's not showy like Boiler and his and his high pitched wailing scream that gets the uh, gets the easy laugh. No, no, no. Uh -huh. She is there, subtle. She is the sniper, just coming in and just taking yeah. it out. She is the hitman taking out the big laughs when you least expect it. <laughs> The big thing that made this episode stand out for me was the presence of a journalist on board the Cerritos. Yes. And it made me think, where have we seen that before? Um, what is the what is the presence of journalism as a thing and, and you know, news in the Star Trek universe? Um, so I thought we'd explore that. Uh, there There is not super much of it. Yeah, and that's a fascinating concept for us. You know, a lot of the topics that we've brought up, there's so much uh, in the way of resources and examples. But for this yeah. in, yeah, you know, how, and especially it's become uh, so like a battle line has been drawn between what is news and what is, dare I say the word, fake news mm. within society at the moment. And journalism is now very much more of a dangerous occupation than it ever used to be. That is certainly, I agree with you, that is probably behind the, the recent like surge of 
news coverage in the Star Trek universe. I think the the premiere of Picard season one, where he's sat down at the start in the first episode in his chateau and grilled by the Federation yes. News Network reporter about what actually happened in the evacuation of, of Romulus. Yes. Um, yeah, the the sense that the journalist is against you yes. and maybe not that interested in the truth does seem like a particularly of our times thing. Very much so, very much so. And how the journalist was portrayed within their own little world and what expectations and their ambition that they have. But there is that positive element of, even though it is done as an expose of how bad the captain is, exposing mm. the positivity that is you know, within the sh the ship's crew, um, like the big one for me that came to my head, and when you did the list, I went, "Yeah," was Jake Cisco from um, mm -hmm. Deep Space Nine, and that was he came across in the more naive, almost uh, very innocent view of. I want to report on things and I want to spread the word out there of how it is. It really is the opposite. Yeah. It is news as a force or news writing in this case as a force for truth. Yes. And information and sharing stories of people. And that's very almost romantic view of um, what journalism is. Very much the opposite to that, you know, cynical view of things that is in Picard, especially. But, you know, the word cynicism can be used quite liberally when describing season one of Picard. But to have, yeah. but Jake was very much that anchor of um, that romantic, optimistic view of getting to the truth and sharing the story. And it's very much a, you know, gee, golly gosh, gee, Willikers type of, you know, Jimmy Olsen type approach to journalism. Certainly at the beginning that when I went back and looked at it, cause I remembered Jake being a reporter. But I didn't remember the details. And when I looked back, I was surprised by how little actual, uh, how little of Jake's writing is actually shown to us. Like, we are told again and again that he is a writer. And that he became, getting published. yeah, and that he released, like, especially in, is it The Visitor, the one where Cisco is revisiting Jake as he's getting older and older and older. And he becomes, a, you know, an award-winning author as opposed to a journalist. Yeah, we are told of his writing, but we never actually get much of a sample of it. There is a headline that is read in an episode uh, called Call to Arms, season five, episode 26. Just as the war is sparking off, um, so is Jake's writing career. Yes. And he gets a Federation News Service article published with a headline uh, citing Station Commander Opposes Non-Aggression Pact. So there he is making headlines by writing about his dad. <laughs> his, his dad's not too impressed. Of course. But that headline, as far as I can tell, is the only actual on-screen sample of Jake's writing that we get. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. So it is almost more a character trait that we are told than anything we are we actually get to witness or see. Exactly. Yes. And so, I mean, when you're dealing with ensemble, there are always going to be elements of characters that will be you know thrown by the wayside. So just go giving the title of uh, would be journalist to Jake. You're sort of like, a, well, you can assume the other stuff. Where as opposed mm. to going, no, we want to actually see how his writing is and how that you know moves people or not.
For me, the meatiest bit of Jake as a reporter is in season six, episode one, A Time to Stand. This is the very next episode. So we had the season finale mm-hmm. of season five and then the season premiere of season six. This is when uh, the the Cardassians and the Dominion return to occupy the station. That's right. Jake stays behind to report on the war. And there's this great scene where he's he's chasing a interview with Wei Yun and he corners him on the promenade and he says, "Mr. Wei Yun, can I get a can I get a uh, an interview for my readers?" And Wei Yun says, "No, I don't talk to biased journalists basically." <laughs> <laughs> it is a great uh scene for Wei Yun. I I think my like watching it again now, Sirach Lofton is still like learning his acting chops. He's still not quite there yet. Oh. He definitely gets there before the end of the season. But, he blossoms as an actor, but in this, he's still a little shaky. Certainly, in the face of Jeffrey Coombs as oh. Wei Yun, who who kicks this scene in the butt, and he he basically says to he he takes everything that. Jake has been reporting in his uh, missives that Wayun has been blocking. So none of Jake's writing has been getting back to yeah. the narration. And he's like, you're, you're, all your perspectives are biased, Jake Sisko. You call us an <laughs> occupying force. Um, when this is a Cardassian station, we are just retaking, retaking our rightful yeah. place. And there are no occupiers on Bajor. We have a peace treaty with them. They're our allies. So you, you, Jake, if you want your writing to get out there, you're going to have to make a more balanced perspective yeah. of your writing. It is just beautiful how you almost see it his way. Oh. That is that is Wei Yun's gift again and again, as you almost see it his way. And that's the gift of Jeffrey Coombs. And I'm so glad that D Space Nine used him so much uh, within the show. He, this is time on Star Trek playing multiple characters. He's a phenomenal uh, actor. And I was lucky enough to interview him uh years ago what yeah 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 stop the podcast <laughs> tell me that story when i hosted uh, my own show on channel 31 uh, called uh, live on bowen back in uh 2012 and 2013 mm-hmm. i did a big push to get us tickets to interview uh guests at the convention so supernova and comic-con and stuff like that and um I think it was 2013 uh, for Comic-Con. They had Tim Rose, who was a puppeteer operating uh, Admiral Akbar in Return of the Jedi, and Jeffrey Coombs. And I got to sit down with him, and I went over time, and uh, Jeffrey Coombs just said, oh, no, let's keep going. And we spoke about Frighteners. We spoke about uh, Star Trek. We spoke about his, his solo show about Edgar Allan Poe. And he's that quintessential theater actor he'd love mm. he'd love i love actors who love being actors not mm. actors who like being superstars or celebrities i love actors who love the craft and he loves mm. he loves the process of acting and creating a character and working with directors and you know ripping apart a script and jeffrey coombs just lives and breathes that you know from the guy who did reanimator <laughs> to have that passion yeah it should be on youtube look in the show notes listeners the link is there if i've been able to find it <laughs> yeah he's um amazing and um yeah his work as Wiyun is sort of like a character that you don't expect to have so much depth to him being a, a clone and being multiple versions yeah. of a, a character but and his work as brunt as well is hilarious uh-huh. Uh-huh. um yeah, yeah it, and i think that would have worked 
great uh, to you know for a for a actor still developing their craft to work up against the greats. You always step up. It's a shame for poor Jake that we never actually got to hear his writing because I could imagine a great episode that had Jake's writing as the narration. Yes. Like there's a there's a couple of other Star Trek episodes that are structured that way, like Dear Doctor from Enterprise, where Doctor Flox is writing letters about his experiences on the Enterprise, and that that provides the narrative backbone yeah. of the episode. And I could really see a, a DS9 episode being structured that way. Sadly, we never got it. Um, but uh, um, just co- coincidentally, this very week, in comic book form, we have Star Trek. Number one, a new series, a new ongoing series from IDW that opens with Cisco returning from the wormhole and his the first words out of his mouth are Jake. Thank you for sending me that little uh, sneak preview as well. Yeah. Well, the, what I didn't send you is the very next page is an article by Jake Cisco. And I don't know, you tell me if this should stay in the episode, but I'm going to read this now to you just because I know you'll appreciate it, Rob. <laughs> The, uh, the title of this article is What We Left Behind. How about that? Beautiful. By Jake Sisko. Let's start with the story we tell ourselves. 315 years ago, as Earth recovered from decades of war, Zephram Cochran launched a homemade starship from the ruins of a missile silo and achieved faster-than-light travel for the first time in human history. He called it Warp Drive. The flight was noticed by a passing science vessel from the highly advanced planet of Vulcan. Soon, Vulcan and Earth, alongside warlike Andoria, commercial hub Telar, and rugged human colony Proxima, formed an allied government that would forever alter the landscape of the galaxy. Now, for 200 years, the United Federation of Planets and their Starfleet have stood for mutual understanding, scientific achievement, defense, and exploration. The pinnacle of civilization, where collective interest outshines individual greed and war is a distant memory. What men like Zephram Cochran would have called utopia. That's the story anyway, but I've lived a different one. When I was two years old, a godlike species attacked the starship I called home. They called themselves the Borg. They had no use for our utopian ideals, and they felt nothing when they killed my mother. When I was 14, my father took a Starfleet command on the border between Cartasia and Bajor. The Cardassians had spent the last 40 years subjugating the Bajoran homeworld. When I saw the scars from the labor camps on refugee children at my school, I asked my father why we'd allowed such crimes to take place. He answered with a sigh and a single word, politics. Hmm. When I was 17, Starfleet went to war with the Dominion. I watched as everyone I knew went to war. My best friend lost his leg. My father, a thoughtful man of peace, became known across the galaxy as a Machiavellian war hero. And a few days before my 20th birthday, the gods of the Bajoran people, an alien species who lived in the nearby wormhole, known as the Prophets, told my father he had a grand destiny. They took him into their temple beyond space and time. He promised that one day he would return, and that was the last time I ever saw Benjamin Sisko. So I've learned something about promises, living the last three years, watching as the Federation News Service speaks less and less about the war each day, listening 
listening as we begin to once again talk about our utopia like it will last forever, like there aren't gods at the gates that make everything we are look small. And I've begun to wonder if, like my mother, I'm just another thing this story's left behind. Oh, now that's what I call good writing, Jake Sisko. How about that? Nice one, Jake Sisko. And nice one to Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, who wrote this comic book. Well done, gentlemen. Uh, I recommend it. Even if you have never picked up a Star Trek comic before, I would say this is a great place to start. So it's just under the banner Star Trek. It's not specific. It's just called Star Trek. Uh, Featured on the cover of the first issue are Commander Sisko, or or Captain Sisko, I suppose he is now. Yes, he is. Uh, Data and Beverly Crusher. Hey. Uh, all standing together on a transporter pad. And uh, let me tell you, the promise of that cover image is fulfilled in this <laughs> issue. So it's three years after D Space Nine. Yeah. Finale. Wow. Yeah. Well written, Jake, and of course, those wonderful gentlemen. Wow. That's... So yeah, a taste of what we didn't get from Jake. And, and what I, I think, like, I am still craving that... Uh, use of journalism, investigative journalism as a force for truth yes. in in the Star Trek universe. We never really got it. No, no, it's it's one of those, the more you get engrossed in a franchise and the universe of that franchise, the more you would think about, what about, you know, those everyday jobs or the jobs that don't, don't fit into the parameters of a storyline that you want to see and how it fits in, you know, for me personally being a performer, you know, I always go, what happens with, you know, acting and performing and movies and, and theater and all that type of stuff. It's one of my favorite parts of, uh, um, uh, you know, the greatest Star Trek movie ever made galaxy quest when, mm. uh, Alan Rickman's character goes, don't you have any acting in your culture, any, any theater, mm. uh, but they go, Oh, no, 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 no. We don't know what that is. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating thing to, to find out what it actually is to be a journalist within the, you know, within the Starfleet Star Trek universe. It would, yeah, to explore that a bit more as opposed to having a so cut and dry as either, you know, enemy of the people or uh, embittered but still hopeful uh, journalist trying to find the truth. One of the reasons I I suspect we have not gotten stories of journalism, at least not traditionally in Star Trek, uh, is that in the same way that money is not present in the Star Trek universe, because it is a, you know, money is the root of all evil. It is it is a flaw of current humanity that <laughs> aspirationally we have shed by the time we take to the stars. Yeah, I feel like Gene Roddenberry perhaps would have put journalism in that same bucket. The idea that the truth is not... Uh, obviously known and embraced universally by humanity that we need people arguing over the truth or negotiating history uh, as it happens feels to me like something that he would have seen as a flaw of humanity that we might have left behind in our perfection. Yeah. And especially like with what would that mean in or look like in other species as well, you know, especially Uh like the Bajorans are such a deeply spiritually rooted uh, culture that you wouldn't see, you know, their their way of communicating is through their their teachings from from their religion. And um and that is and they seek their their truth from their Kais or whoever is the highest, you know, religious figure. 
um, mm. all within sort of like the Cardassian culture. It's all based on war, so they control the message that the war machine is and what is their truth is controlled by the military. Um, and the Klingons, their you know their truth or their passing on of messages through song of figures and warriors from the past are, are, are handed down, the songs that are sung about them. So how journalism fits within those cultures um, that hasn't really been created to fit that in there. Yeah. There are a few other um, occurrences of journalism in, in various forms in Star Trek. There is, in Star Trek Voyager, uh, Neelix starts a morning show on board the ship, <laughs> which is... It's less journalism and it's more like uh, radar on MASH of, of like, hey, everybody, good morning. It is a bit like that. It's interesting you say that because radar was my favorite character of MASH and Neelix, if I hit him with a car, I'd probably back up just to make sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You can cut that out. Well, there is, a, there is one episode called Investigations in which Neelix starts to take his role as the ship's journalist a little seriously. He's inspired by the idea of journalism being about getting to the bottom of the truth no matter what. And he starts to uh, unravel a mystery on the ship involving Tom Paris. Tuvok is trying to talk him out of it, and it's because it is a deliberate sort of undercover operation that Neelix is at risk of, of foiling in his efforts to report on it. So it is kind of charming, but it is just one episode, and it's, it's plot device more than, more than heart of the story, I feel like. Yes, yes, and I, I'm particularly interested in the fact that I'd forgotten about it because it is from the movie... Uh, generations there's actually a journalist crew on uh yeah on board and interviewing um uh, this momentous occasion of the new enterprise going out with uh with um alan ruck and yes. and the daughter of sulu um the journalists are there to report on this occasion because you've got the three big guns coming out of retirement to to greet it off yeah, I'm going to argue that this this opening of what is, I think most people would say is an uneven Star Trek movie. Hmm. It, it has its charms as the, the first appearance of the Next Generation crew on the big screen. Um, but uh, yeah, this opening of Star Trek Generations with the Enterprise B, uh, I'm going to argue is the most effective use of journalism in all of Star Trek. Yeah. It, it, this uh, contrast it creates between Kirk, Scotty, and Chekhov stepping on the ship, like dazzled by the lights of the reporters in their eyes, and they don't know what to do in front of a film crew. <laughs> Uh, they are constantly like awkward about it. They they come back to the ship and go, "What did you think of the warp core?" And they're like, oh, "It's fine. It's, <laughs> I feel fine." You know, they they don't know how to put on a show for the cameras. And then Captain Harriman like struts across the bridge and, and gives a live interview and knows and exactly like what to guide. do. Yeah, he knows exactly how to work the camera and he gives them his best angle. And then the distress call comes in and he freezes, freaks out. Yeah. He freaks the freak out. <laughs> um, and it is it is effective. Uh, when eventually Kirk steps in to save the day, and he uh, it is beautifully written and played. You can tell he knows his place. He's not going to step in until he asks. Yeah. But as soon as he's asked, he switches on. It, it, it is a beautiful uh, moment. He's there going, I know what to do. I know what to do, but yeah. I'm not doing anything. And so he goes, right, okay, here we go. Bang, 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 bang. <laughs> Scotty goes, Captain, is there something wrong with your chair? <laughs> That's right, yes. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, as soon as Captain Harriman says, I would appreciate any suggestions, Kirk says, well, suggestion one is get in transporter range and start beaming those people off those ships. Uh, and number two, turn that damn thing off, yes. he says to the camera. Uh, so the beautiful, I think this is, again, uh, it's going to that thing I was I was talking about where the presence of journalism is seen as a flaw or a weakness. It cheapens the moment. You kind of get the sense, and you're on Kirk's side, that uh, the media attempting to make headlines out of the sacred act of uh, launching a starship Mm. is cheapening the entire uh, event. And it is interesting, isn't it? Because especially like... um, uh, there's multiple examples of, in reality, you know, journalists in war zones being able to pass on stories about um, the horrors or the triumphs yeah. on the battlefield or in moments like this or, you know, within the war zone that would not have gotten out because especially we're seeing it now with, you know, sorry for getting so heavy, within the war in Ukraine that both Russia and also Ukraine have become mm. experts in how they spin the war uh, for their own campaigns. So mm-hmm. to have, you know, Ukraine spin it in a way to to build up that hope and also show the victories that they have. Um, the, U- the, the Russian journalists are sort of like, there's, you know, this is all, you know, this is not occupation, this is liberating a people. And so to have those journalists on the field bringing out stories of of truth about cr- war crimes and horrors and but also moments of bravery and all that type of stuff so there is you know it's not just a black and white issue despite how clearly it is in star trek sometimes uh mm. quite black and white there is an element of capturing those moments of heroism so that can inspire and the stories of people who are affected by this is important to hear the first ever mention of the media or news reporting in Star Trek that I was able to dig up uh, is Star Trek VI, so one movie before Generations, in which uh, after the assassination of Chancellor Gorkon, Valeris just casually drops in a conversation um, that his his daughter, Azetbur, has been... Uh, appointed as Chancellor of the Klingon High Council, it was on the news, she says. Yes. And it was. it is such a strange line. Like, I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, that's weird. But it's not commented on. It's not the point of the scene. It's just like, um, everyone kind of gives her a second look of like, how do you know that? And she goes, it was on the news. <laughs> And I don't know if it's meant to be like a hint at the fact that she is the traitor mm. later, that she knows a little too much about about what's going on among the conspirators in this story. Yeah. But uh, yeah, every time I have watched that movie, that line is stuck out as odd, but also just a passing moment. It's not the point of the story or anything, but the, the presence of the media just... The recognition of its existence feels weird in this year. Yeah, well spotted. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah, Star Trek Six is one of the best. I've never picked that up, so you'll notice it next time. I'll notice <laughs> it next time. Well, we will be back next week with the uh, season finale of Star Trek Lower Decks, and perhaps even the mid-season premiere. Uh, 
seasons have no meaning anymore, <laughs> Rob. Apparently, we're still in season one of Star Trek Prodigy. We have no sense of time or seasons or <laughs> anything anymore. What the hell is going on? I look forward to chatting about it and, and chatting about Lower Decks one last time for this season. One last time. So until next time, second, turn that damn thing off. <laughs>